Chapter 18 of Hellenic History. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ryan Fahey, Fairfield, Connecticut. Hellenic History by George Willis Botsford. Chapter 18. The Peloponnesian War to the Beginning of the Sicilian Expedition, 431-415. to Causes of the War, Conflicting Political Principles Among the most powerful disintegrating forces referred to at the close of the last chapter was the long war between the Athenians and the Peloponnesians, begun in 431. From the conclusion of the Thirty Years' Truce of 445 to this date, peace had been maintained in spite of an ever-growing antipathy between the two powers. Among the causes of hostility was an Athenian claim to leadership generally considered incompatible with the liberties of individual states and with the long-established policy of Lacedaemon. The Athenians asserted that their hegemony had been forced upon them by Sparta's unwillingness to continue the war with Persia, that circumstances not under their control had converted the confederacy into an empire, and that, though they had been compelled thus to usurp an authority, they had made good their right to it by a justice and a moderation unparalleled in history. Against this claim their enemies, particularly the Corinthians, charging Athens with the enslavement of her allies and with the design of reducing other Hellenes to servitude, called upon Lacedaemon to take the lead in putting down the tyrant. The Spartans, who for generations had been opposed to despotism, still considered themselves champions of the principle of city sovereignty, and were so regarded by their allies. The feeling of mankind was strongly on the side of the Lacedaemonians, for they professed to be the liberators of Hellas. States and individuals were eager to assist them to the utmost, both by word and by deed, for the general indignation against the Athenians was intense. Some were longing to be delivered from them, others fearful of falling under their sway. A Conflict of Economic Interests Athenian Designs Upon Megara A more particular cause of the war lay in a conflict of interests between Athens and individual allies of Lacedaemon. An article of the Treaty of 445 had provided for the open door in commerce between the Athenian Empire and Peloponnese. Recently, however, the Athenians, alleging that the Megarians had encroached upon sacred land near the border and had sheltered runaway slaves, retaliated by excluding the offending state from the harbors and markets of the empire. Megara depended economically upon Athens, whose real object undoubtedly was to force the little Isthmian country into her empire in order to secure harborage on the Corinthian Gulf. To the commercial class at Athens, and to the multitude of urban artisans and laborers, the future prosperity of the city seemed to depend on an enlargement of trade relations with Italy and Sicily. Doubtless Pericles, too, who was concerned for the food supply, looked to the harvests of the West to make good any possible shortage of importation from Egypt or the Black Sea. Athenian Interest in Corsera and in Western Hellas the same motive led the Athenians to interfere in a war between Corinth and her colony Corsera, and to accept an alliance proposed by the latter. 
Among the arguments for an alliance, the Corsirian ambassadors stated that, besides offering many other advantages, Corsera is conveniently situated for the coast voyage to Italy and Sicily. It stands in the way of any fleet coming from thence to Peloponnese and can also protect a fleet on its way to Sicily. Should Athens succeed in these ambitions, her merchant vessels and her war galleys could save time and risk by sailing from the western shore of Megaris through the Corinthian Gulf to Corsera and thence to southern Italy. The Athenian Commercial Menace to Peloponnese The economic motive to the war had a still wider scope. The rise of Piraeus had destroyed the prosperity of Aegina and was choking the industrial and commercial life of both Megara and Corinth. Athenian supremacy at sea threatened to cut Peloponnese off from the rest of the world. In a Congress of Sparta's allies, deputies from Corinth clearly described this situation. Those among us who have ever had dealings with the Athenians do not require to be warned against them. But such as live inland and not on any maritime highway should clearly understand that, if they do not protect the seaboard, they will not be able to carry their produce to the sea or to receive in exchange the goods which the sea gives to the land. They should not lend a careless ear to our words, for they nearly concern them. They should remember that if they desert the cities on the coast, the danger may someday reach them. Fear of the Increasing Political Power of Athens The real reason for the war, however, asserts Thucydides, was not the complaints of allies in Congress, but Sparta's fear of the Athenians and their increasing power. The statement is true in the sense that this was Sparta's motive, and that if she had not engaged in the war, either it would not have occurred or would have been carried on by only a few of her allies, and hence would have remained relatively insignificant. Athenian party politics as a cause. The attitude of Pericles toward the war may only be inferred from circumstances. The oligarchic opposition, disorganized by the banishment of Thucydides, had recovered strength, but not daring as yet to attack him openly, it assailed his friends and helpers. First his enemies prosecuted Phaedius on the charge of having embezzled some of the gold entrusted to him for use on the statue of Athena. Though ready to prove his innocence, he was thrown into prison, where he died while awaiting his trial. Next they prosecuted Aspasia for immoral conduct and impiety, but the tears of Pericles won the judges to a favorable verdict. About the same time, one of his opponents proposed and carried a decree for instituting legal proceedings against all persons who disbelieved in religion and held views of their own regarding the heavenly bodies. As this resolution was aimed at Anaxagoras, Pericles advised the philosopher to avoid trouble by retiring from Athens. Finally, they threatened Pericles himself with prosecution for embezzlement of public funds. Had they succeeded in overthrowing him, they would doubtless have attempted to set up an oligarchy and to return to political dependence on Lacedaemon. To avoid this danger, Pericles felt compelled to seek support in the industrial and commercial class, which was determined upon political expansion. At the same time, it appeared to him that sooner or later, a trial of arms with Peloponnese was inevitable. 
It was better, then, that it should come while he was still in the prime of life, and Athens in excellent military condition. Hence he persuaded his countrymen to oppose every concession to the Peloponnesians. The Resources of the Opposing Powers Knowing better than any contemporary the resources of Athens and her enemy, Pericles had ground for confidence. Arrayed against his state were the forces of nearly all Peloponnese, of the Boeotian Confederacy under Theban leadership, of lesser allies in the center and west of the peninsula. The enemy could invade Attica with a force of 30,000 heavy infantry, but could not remain long in the country because most of the Peloponnesians were small farmers, who personally tilled their lands, and because they had to bring their food supplies with them. They could devastate the fields, but could accomplish nothing against the strong fortifications of Athens and Piraeus. The industry and commerce of Athens would continue so long as her fleets commanded the sea. The idea of borrowing from the treasuries of Delphi and Olympia for building a Peloponnesian navy, though suggested, proved an idle dream. Against the almost total lack of public funds among the enemy could be reckoned 6,000 talents stored in the treasuries on the Acropolis and an annual income from tributes and other sources amounting to about a 1,000 talents. Pericles' Plan of Conducting the War The plan of Pericles, therefore, was to bring the entire population of the country with their movable goods into the city and permit the devastation of the fields, for an open battle with the superior force of the enemy could not be risked. Meantime, with his fleet, he would ravage the coasts of Peloponnese and cut off its commerce. Thus, while partially compensating the Athenians for damage to their fields, he would gradually force the enemy to a more favorable peace than that of 445. Gathering of the Population into the City the cold, calculating plan of Pericles subjected Athenian nature to an excessive strain. Notwithstanding the rapid growth of city economy, the bulk of the population still resided in the country, and still depended in large part on farming. They had restored their fields and country houses after the Persian invasion, and through favoring economic conditions they had developed a prosperity scarcely known in any other Greek country. It is impossible for us to appreciate their fond attachment to their local shrines, whose small gods, they thought, were more sympathetic protectors than the mighty warden of the Acropolis. They gathered perforce behind the walls, where few had houses of their own or hospitable friends. Most had to live in a barrack, an outhouse, a hovel, a shed, in nests of the rock where the vultures are bred in tubs and in huts and in towers of the wall. The first year of the war, 431, the funeral oration. When they heard that a Peloponnesian army was ravaging the country, cutting down orchards and destroying the ripe grain in the fields, they longed to go forth and fight the enemy. Gathering in knots in the streets, they complained bitterly of their plight and laid the whole blame of the war and their losses upon Pericles. The great statesman, who had dispatched a fleet to ravage the Peloponnesian coast, maintained his policy at home in spite of opposition. In the autumn, he persuaded the people to decree a reserve of a thousand talents, to be used only in case of an attack by sea, and of a hundred of their best triremes to be ready always for the defense of Piraeus. In his naval operations, 
and in diplomacy he had made real gains, and was undoubtedly pleased with the results. After the campaign, the remains of those who had fallen in battle during the summer were solemnly conveyed in procession to the state cemetery in Ceramacus, a beautiful spot outside the walls, and interred amid the lamentation of their kin, citizens and medics, women and men. After the burial, Pericles addressed the people in a funeral oration commented on in an earlier chapter. The custom was followed year by year throughout the war. The Pestilence, 430 and after. In the second year, there was the usual invasion of Attica by the Peloponnesians and the Athenian voyage of desolation along the Peloponnesian coastland. In fact, these operations were, as a rule, repeated during the early period of the war. The season had not far advanced, however, before a terrible plague, beginning in Africa south of Egypt, reached Piraeus. As no aqueduct had yet been built to the port town, the inhabitants had to depend upon cistern water, and these circumstances aggravated the malady. Soon it passed up between the long walls to Athens. The population of both cities was densely packed. They lacked the necessities of life. There was no sewerage or any efficient sanitation. The victims were seized with fierce internal fevers, accompanied by horrible symptoms minutely described in the pages of Thucydides. Ordinarily, they died on the seventh or ninth day. To be taken with the pest meant death, but those who almost miraculously recovered were thereafter practically immune. As is usual in such calamities, this plague called forth the noblest heroism. Physicians and relatives bravely sacrificed their lives in devotion to duty or in love of kin. At the same time, it awakened in Athens the most beastly appetites and passions that dwell in depraved human nature. We shall die tomorrow. Let us yield today to every rabid desire. Fully a third of the population was swept away, and those who survived were totally unmanned. The discouragement was all the greater, because at the beginning of the war, Apollo had promised aid to the foe, and the people now attributed the plague to his enmity. The End of Pericles, 429 Humbly they sought peace of Sparta, but repulsed by her, they turned against Pericles as the author of their woes. In spite of all he could say in defense of his policy, they suspended him from office and fined him. Having thus satisfied their resentment, they soon afterward re-elected him general with absolute power. He survived the beginning of the war only two years and six months. After his death, the people learned his value by bitter experience. For he had told the Athenians that if they would be patient and would attend to their navy and not seek to enlarge their dominion while the war was going on, nor imperil the existence of the city, they would be victorious. These words were undoubtedly true. The misfortunes afterwards suffered came through deviations from his policy. The Silent Revolution Marked by His Death Thus passed away the only man who stood sufficiently high above all individuals and parties to command universal respect. In his death, the Eupatrids lost their hold upon the government whose leadership passed to men of the industrial class, such as Cleon the Tanner, who, unable to win the powerful support of the old nobility and of the moderate class, had to resort to lower politics and cater to the baser and more brutal desires and instincts of the populace. The revolution thus silently effected 
was as great as the century-long conflict at Rome which opened the consulship to the plebeians, and in its immediate consequences far more sweeping, for in her war with Peloponnese, Athens lost through the death of Pericles centralization of leadership and continuity of policy. The Economic Burden of the War The details of the various expeditions of the earlier years of the war, small defeats and victories, the capture or loss of points of vantage, have little interest for the student of Greek life. To the majority of the population, as explained above, the war was a grievous affliction, aggravated by the plague, which in a less violent form recurred annually for several years. The income of citizens and state was vastly diminished. No land could be tilled beyond the neighborhood of Athens and Piraeus. The work in the mines of Lorium nearly ceased, and in spite of the Athenian naval supremacy, commerce was hampered by buccaneers and by the squadrons of the enemy. The port dues correspondingly shrank while the delinquencies in the tributes accumulated, and the dues from Korea were collected only by military expeditions, which sometimes ended in disaster. Whereas the revenues diminished, the expenses enormously increased. For a time, the difference was met by loans from the funds of Athena and of the other gods, at the rate of about 800 talents a year. In 428, Lesbos, which alone with Chios had remained an independent ally, revolted. In the face of this new peril, and of the rapid melting away of the reserve, the Athenians for the first time in the war resorted to a direct tax for raising 200 talents, which was probably repeated during the next two years. Relative to the expenses, the sum was slight, but it weighed heavily upon unproductive lands and on citizens already loaded down with expensive public services. Longings for Peace Under these circumstances, the feelings of the Athenians toward the war were so mixed as to be difficult of analysis. Undoubtedly, the intellectuals and the landed aristocracy longed for peace. Most farmers of moderate wealth would gladly have received their discharge from hoplite service, and be granted the opportunity, in peace, to re-establish their ruined fields. Rapidly as the growth of their civilization with its humane spirit, a love of peace and of her occupations had permeated all classes. In the first year of the war, Euripides could address the Athenians as inhabitants of a country preeminently of peace, wisdom, harmony, music, and love. O oh, happy the race in the ages olden! of Erechtheus, the seed of the blessed God's line, in a land unravaged, peace enfolden, I quaffing of wisdom's glorious wine. Ever through air clear shining brightly, as on wings uplifted, pacing lightly, where harmonia, they tell, of the tresses golden, grew, sown by the muses, the stainless nine. Militaristic motives. The desire of gain, however, helped keep the war going. Merchants and mechanics expected to suffer little from it, and might hope to extend their business through conquests, while the poor found a livelihood in naval service, or looked to the enlargement of the empire for increased tributes and a lengthened payroll. Throughout the masses of citizens, the patriotic motive was strong, and added to it was a thirst for vengeance on the invaders of their fields. In their eyes, one who dares speak of peace is a traitor. 
Who has dared, Father Zeus, gods of heaven, to make a truce? Who has pledged faith with those who are evermore our foes? Upon whom war I make for my ruined vineyard's sake, and I ne'er from the strife will give over. No, and I ne'er will forbear till I pierce them in return, like a reed sharply barbed, dagger pointed, and they learn not to tread down my vines any more. The Revolt of Lesbos, 428-427 to The years 428 and 427 were made anxious by the Revolt of Lesbos. In the midsummer of the latter year, however, after trying every other resource, the lesbian oligarchs armed the commoners, who lost little time in forcing an unconditional surrender to Athens. Exasperated by the revolt and wishing to strike terror into the hearts of all disaffected allies, the Athenians voted to put to death all the grown-up citizens of Mytilene and to enslave the women and children. The upholder of this policy of terrorism was Cleon. Immediately repenting, however, they gathered again in assembly on the morrow, reversed the cruel sentence, and limited the punishment of death to the few most guilty. The lands of the rebels, however, were confiscated and divided among Athenian colonists. Widening of the war area and the increase of the tribute. Athens was now in a position to widen the field of her operations. She sent aid to her friends in Sicily, and a naval force under Demosthenes seized and held Pylos on the western coast of Peloponnese. Of the force sent to its rescue, nearly 300 Spartans fell into the hands of the Athenians. Cleon, who had brought a reinforcement to Demosthenes during the struggle over Pylos, reaped the fruit of the victory. He was given a seat of honor in the theater and the lifelong right to dine in the Pratinium. He stood without a rival in the leadership of the state. Under his influence, Athens, emboldened by her brilliant success, increased the tribute of her allies to a nominal total probably of 1,460 talents, a sum considerably greater than the amount actually collected. The volume of money in circulation had greatly expanded, prices had correspondingly risen, and the wealth of the allies under the peace of Athens had multiplied. All these circumstances had rendered the increase of the tribute both necessary and relatively just. Other ordinary revenues brought the total income of the imperial city to 1,500 talents. The Athenians themselves were relieved of their burdensome direct taxes and were enabled to increase the pay of their officials and to prosecute the war with greater energy. In vain, the conservatives stood against Cleon, the real, though not the nominal, author of this measure. In vain, Aristophanes sought in his comedy of the knights to crush him with ridicule and contempt. Although without military experience, he was elected general in the spring of 424 and became more popular and more dominant than ever. The tide turns against Athens, 424, a year's truce, 423. The Athenians followed up their success at Pylos by seizing other commanding positions along the Peloponnesian coast. But in an attempt to conquer Boeotia, they were disastrously beaten at Delium. It was still more unfortunate for Athens that Brasidas, Sparta's ablest general, found the weak point in the Athenian Empire. The only part assailable by a land army, Chalcides and its Thracian neighborhood. 
With a small force, he stole northward and, appearing before Amphipolis, persuaded that important city to revolt. These reverses induced the Athenian majority again to think of peace. A truce of one year was followed by a renewal of the war. Before Amphipolis, an engagement took place in which both Brasidas and Cleon, the chief obstacles to peace, were killed. War Weariness, Peace of Nicias, 421 Both sides were disappointed with the results of the war. The Peloponnesians had hoped to bring Athens to speedy terms by invading her territory, but had accomplished nothing in this direction, and they now saw their coast ravaged, their commerce cut off, and slaves and helots incited to desertion or rebellion by permanent garrisons on their border. In place of the naval supremacy they had hoped to win, they saw their war galleys as well as their merchant ships swept from the seas. Athens, too, could balance her gains by as heavy losses in life and money. The reserves in the Acropolis were nearly exhausted. The main sources of prosperity had been choked by invasions, and the temper of the allies under their double load of taxation was ominous. Under these circumstances, the peace party, always strong, gained a majority in the assembly. Their leader was Nicias, a man of great wealth and of respectable family. In the spring of 421, he negotiated the peace which bears his name. The Joys of Peace Although the terms of peace were kept by neither side, the Lacedaemonians and the Athenians refrained from invading each other's territory for a period of seven years. To most of the Athenians, apart from armorers and others whom war nourished, peace came as a boundless joy. The marketplace overflowed with an unwanted happy life, as provisions grew more plentiful and prices dropped. The Megarian came with his garlic, salt, and figs, while the Theban brought a greater variety of wares, small articles of handicraft, and the fish and fowl of Lake Copaeus. The men of Athens welcomed such comers and prayed for a continuance of the prosperity. Moreover, we pray that our marketplace may be furnished each day with a goodly display, and for garlic and cucumbers early and rare, pomegranates and apples in heaps to be there, and we little coats for our servants to wear, and Boeotia to send us her pigeons and widgeons, and her geese and her plovers, the plentiful creels, once more from Copaeus to journey with eels, and for us to be hustling and tussling and bustling, with gourmands together besieging the stall to purchase a fish. To the noise of barter was added the hum of Boeotian bagpipes. Theban, and now you minstrels that needs would follow us all the way from Thebes, Blow wind in the tail of your bagpipes, puff away. Athenian, get out, what wind has brought him here, I wonder. A parcel of hornets buzzing about the door. You humble bumble drones, get out, get out. Return to the farms. The peace of Aristophanes, presented at the Greater Dionysia of 421, represents the rural party as even more delighted with the new conditions. They had suffered long from the war-loving demagogues, and from the military officers, who had treated them with far less favor than the city folk. But now, released from service on the fleet, and from constant military drill at the Lyceum, they promise to be milder and more yielding as jurors, while they return with youthful zest to repairing their country homes. Farmer, 
Oh yes, oh yes, the farmers all may go, back to their homes, farm implements and all. You can leave your darts behind you, yea, for sword and spear shall cease. All things all around are teeming with the mellow gifts of peace. Shout your paeans, march away to labor in your fields today. Chorus, farmers. Day most welcome to the farmers and to all the just and true. Now I see you, I am eager once again my vines to view. And the fig trees, which I planted in my boyhood's early prime, I would fain salute and visit after such a weary time. Farmer, yes, by Zeus, the well-armed mattock seems to sparkle as we gaze, and the burnished pitchforks glitter in the sun's delighted rays. Very famously, with those will they clear the vineyard rose so that I myself am eager homeward to my farm to go, breaking up the little furrows long neglected with the hoe. Rural Pleasures and Recreations It was not merely to hard labor in the fields that the rustics trooped away on the signing of the treaty, but also to rural pleasures, for the farmer was a Greek with the Greek view of life. In the midst of labors he found in homely festivals, in the gathering of friends to a simple meal in his house, rest from fatigues, and an invigoration to future effort. Ah, there's nothing half so sweet as when the seed is in the ground. God, a gracious rain is sending, and a neighbor saunters round. O oh, Comarchides, he hails me. How shall we enjoy the hours? Drinking seems to suit my fancy, what with these benignant showers. Therefore let three quarts, my mistress, of your kidney beans be fried, Mix them nicely up with barley, and your choicest figs provide. Sirrah, run and shout to Manes, call him in without delay. Tis no time to stand and dawdle, pruning out the vines today. Nor to break the clods about them, now the ground is soaking through. Bring me out from home the field fare, bring me out the siskins too. Then there ought to be some beastings, four good plates of hair besides. Ha! unless the cat purloined them yesterday at eventide. Something scuffled in the pantry, something made a noise and fuss. If you find them, once for father, bring the other three to us. Ask Iskanades to send us myrtle branches green and strong. Bid Kirinades attend us, shouting as you pass along. Then we'll sit and drink together, God the while refreshing, blessing all the labors of our hands. Peace forever. About the same time Euripides, in the suppliants, expresses the wish that the short span of human life be free henceforth from the harsh toils of war. Hapless mortals, why do ye get you spears and deal out death to fellow men? Stay, from such toils forbear, and peaceful mid the peaceful ward your towns. Short is life's span, behooves to pass through this softly as may be, not with travail torn. Rise of Alcibiades, Renewal of Hostilities, 418. However desirable the peace, the Lacedaemonians could not compel their allies to fulfill the terms. For her own security, therefore, Sparta entered into a close defensive union with Athens. The Peloponnesian League dissolved. Elis and Mantinea joined the Argives. Hereupon Athens, breaking her treaty with Lacedaemon, sent a force to the aid of Argos. The new policy of Athens was due to Alcibiades, nephew of Pericles. Handsome, brilliant, and daring— this young man had been petted and spoiled by kinsfolk and fellow citizens. He deported himself in reckless violation of law and custom, saturated in sophistic instruction, 
he recognized no principle but self-seeking. Experience in campaigning and personal fascination gave him, 420, the generalship, which he used in rehabilitating the war party, for he hoped by war to advance his own interest. Under other commanders, the Allied forces were disastrously beaten at Mantinea, 418, by the Lacedaemonians, who thereupon restored their league in Peloponnese, made a new treaty with Argos, and left Athens isolated. Political Machinations at Athens, Ostracism of Hyperbolus, 417. The whole enterprise was a serious blow to the cause of peace in Hellas. The defeat robbed Athens of her advantageous position, and should have meant the overthrow of the young politician who was chiefly responsible for it. With this understanding of the situation, Nicias, who had stood consistently for peace, now hoped to overthrow Alcibiades by a vote of ostracism. There was, however, a third party to the political struggle, Hyperbolus, the lamp-maker, who, with no knowledge of military affairs, had risen from the industrial class to the leadership of those Athenians who looked to war for gain. Sophistic training had made him an orator, and as Cleon's successor, though evidently inferior in ability, he dreamed of conquering Sicily and even of assailing Carthage. It was probably fear of overthrow that led Alcibiades to suggest to Nicias the advisability of joining forces to rid themselves of a man so hateful to both. The result was the ostracism of Hyperbolus, 417. Increased stability of the state, milder political warfare. It was the last use of this institution— Ancient writers supposed that ostracism was discredited by being applied to so worthless a character. Probably, however, the Athenians felt that it had been misused in the banishment of a man who did not endanger the state, and certainly it was now exceedingly difficult to bring together 6,000 persons in the assembly. Furthermore, the state was at length too secure to be readily endangered by an individual, and statesmen found in the writ against illegality a sufficient though milder weapon for assailing opponents. These we may assume to be the chief grounds for the discontinuance of ostracism. Revival of the War Spirit, Massacre of the Melians, 416. The event increased the importance of Alcibiades, whose war policy continually grew in favor with the Athenians. Under his influence they besieged and captured the island of Melos, a Lacedaemonian colony. As all Aegean lands were necessarily protected by Athens, there was a certain degree of justice in the policy of compelling all to pay a share of the tribute. The conquerors, however, put to death the grown men and enslaved the women and children. This abnegation of human kindliness, this resort to brute force, though practiced also by the Peloponnesians, aroused universal hatred and fear, and gave to enemies a certain justification for the overthrow of Athens, which in spite of such blots, remained the most humane state in the ancient world. End of chapter 18